Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. So Revelation chapter 20, we are in part 22 of our series. Wow, that's right, Mike. Wow. So we are close. We have chapter 20, 21, and 22, and then we're going to start a new shorter series on the ministry of Jesus and look into the Gospels at the way that Jesus did ministry, and we'll look at the kingdom of God and his life of prayer the way that he brought deliverance to people, had power over demons and sickness. And we'll look at other things, looking at him really as our model for life and ministry. So the last time we looked into Revelation, chapter 19, last week we looked at the marriage of the Lamb and we looked at Jesus, the warrior Messiah, coming again, his second coming, and the defeat of the Antichrist and false prophet. And today we're going to look at chapter 20, which really is about the reign, the rule of Christ and his people. And we are, as the title suggests, gonna try to make a little more sense of this thing called the millennium, the 1,000 year period. Before we do that though, I wanted to look at a couple of slides here. One is reminding us of where we've been over the past several weeks and months. That first little mini outline slide there, you can see it. Revelation one to three, we saw the seven messages to the seven churches from the risen Jesus. And then chapters four to 11, we saw the scenes that were really flowing out of the heavenly court or the heavenly throne room. And we saw that everything in the book of Revelation declares the lordship of Jesus, the sovereignty of God, and how that colors the entire book. And then look at Revelation 12 through 22. That's where we've been most recently. And it really is about the cosmic war, a spiritual battle that is taking place. And we've seen over and over again, including last week, that Satan attacks the followers of Jesus, but he is defeated. And I want to show one more outline. I've been careful to not do this, not give too many outlines and graphics because then we get lost in all the details. But I think it's important for us to see where we've been. This is kind of a map. So just bear with me a minute. I haven't done too much of this, have I? Not at all. But I want us to just see what we've worked through, beginning with the, the prologue to the book, the letters I mentioned to that, the seven seals at number four, the seven trumpets, the seven significant signs, the seven last plagues, and look at number eight here, the triumph of Almighty God. That's chapters 17 through 20, and then we'll see the next time we look in to the book, chapters 21 and 22, it's about a new heaven and a new earth, and then an epilogue that wraps it all up. Why do I show these things? It's not to bore you. Most of us don't look at outlines and go, that is so amazing. That's a life-changing outline, Brock. Would you bring more outlines? But I want us to be students of the Bible. 
students of the Word of God. So even when we come together and we look at the scriptures, we read them, we dig into them together, it really is just illustrating how we read, how we pray, how we live the Bible together. So it's important to see whole pictures like that, isn't it? So I'm very cautious. I don't want to bore us with all the details, but I'm giving you a heads up. We may have a few slides today just because we want to make sense of certain chapters like chapter 20. This chapter 20, as we'll see in a minute, and some of you are familiar with this chapter. Some of us will be brand new to it. It is known for being difficult and divisive in the church. It's actually pretty disgusting to hear stories about how churches fight with one another. I was hearing a story of one gentleman that was uh, interviewing for a job at a church and they wouldn't hire him because of his view of the millennium. They aligned in all the other creedal things and he was you know, orthodox and believed in the scriptures and yet he couldn't get hired because he had a different view of the millennium than what they wanted. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Don't you agree? So we want to say this morning that uh, there's flexibility and we need to be humble. Wallace and I actually talked a lot about this passage in our 14-hour journey. And I think more than anything, I want to just start this morning and say we should be humble before the Word of God. And passages like this, if we think we know it all or we've read all the books and we've done what scholars call great exegesis, we've drawn the meaning out of the text, then we need to humble ourselves afresh. Whether you've studied this chapter or the book of Revelation for a week or 50 years, we should humble ourselves and say, Lord, teach us. We always want to be open-minded, open-hearted, and we want to search out like the Bereans did in the book of Acts for the meaning of the word of God. I would also say it's really not meant to be a difficult and divisive book, but it's, it's challenging. It is challenging. And I just want to reintroduce us and introduce us to the challenging nature of the text this morning. But it's also empowering. It's an empowering chapter because it's about Jesus and it's about his rule and reign and about spiritual warfare that he empowers us to engage in. And then we'll see that it actually teaches our accountability to God. We're going to see in the text that there's four facets of this passage. And again, we'll look at this in some detail, but the first is found in verses one through three. The first facet is Satan is bound in this passage. A second facet is that the saints reign with Christ, verses four through six. Thirdly, verses seven through 10, Satan is defeated. And fourthly, finally, there is a great white throne judgment in verses 11 through 15 that's described here. Now, we could go into great detail and get lost in the granular and all the details, but imagine if you go to the Grand Canyon and you go and pick up one particular interesting rock and maybe look at the shrub that it's next to. 
And so you're looking at this rock and you're doing your geological study on it and looking at the shrub and you're caught up in the shrub and the rock and you don't lift up your head and step back and see that you're in the Grand Canyon, for goodness sake. So we could do that this morning. We could look at all the details and all the rocks, and, but we want to just step back and see the bigger picture that reinforces the message we've seen over and over again, and that is Jesus Christ is Lord. And there will be lots of questions on how does this play out? How does chapter 20 play out? How does the book of Revelation play out? We're not really sure, but we do know that God wins and that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Satan is already a defeated foe. He's defeated, and we don't meditate on that enough. So I want us to meditate this morning on this passage, and we'll get into some of the details, but we're going to see the bigger picture, the greater message that comes from the text. Let's, uh, let's read it. Revelation 20. Hopefully you've got a, a Bible with you. And if not, there's pew Bibles around here. We've got NIV, New International Version. We have NRSV, so you've got a choice. And if you want to bring your other personal version that you prefer, your study Bible, I encourage you to do it. Because as Esther said, as we move forward in the coming days, we want the Spirit of God moving among us in great power. We want to be a church of ongoing Pentecost where the Spirit of God brings the gifts of God and forms Christ in us, but we're also going to have the Word of God open all the time. And we're going to be Word-obsessed people because the Bible is not an end in itself, but the Bible brings us into contact with the living person, Jesus. He's the living Word. So even as we read it, His presence comes to us, His wisdom comes to us. Let's read uh, Revelation 20. And Lord, we do ask... This morning, we we humble ourselves before you and before your word, and we ask for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know you and to have your truth transform our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name. So Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it, the earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God. I noticed some of you closed your eyes and let the the words just kind of wash over you. That's what the early Christians would have done. They would have read this oftentimes in one sitting. They would have read all the chapters in one scroll. And so it, it, it was intended to be read aloud. It's very picturesque, filled with images as we're seeing here. And I think what I want us to do here is I want us to get the bigger picture And then I'm going to take a minute to explain a few of the views on the millennium. But I want us to get things in order. Verses 1 through 3, I mentioned this section right here is about Satan being bound. And the message that comes out of this text, this section, verses 1 through 3, and the whole text, Satan is bound and limited in what he can do. Now, oftentimes we start scratching our heads and wondering, what about this thousand years that's mentioned four times and all that? Let's step back here. The text is telling us that Satan is bound and limited in what he can do. That's the message that's coming through. If you look at the text here, verse 1, John sees an angel coming down from heaven. He's holding a key to this bottomless pit that has showed up in other chapters in Revelation, chapter 9 and others, notice it's an angel. Newsflash. Boy, that's profound, Brock. Think about it. Is this God or Christ who's doing this? It's an angel. And the angel is manhandling Satan. Satan is no match for God, no match for Jesus. This is an angelic being that God sends 
to do the work of God. One uh, commentator says that Satan is an enemy of God on a leash with a timetable. And we've seen in other chapters that especially at the end of the end, in the latter days, Satan is in a panic mode and he realizes that his time is short. Now we're very careful to not mock the enemy, right? We don't mock Satan and all of that, but we have to acknowledge as the church, the people of God, that he's bound and that he will be bound. This is highly symbolic language here, isn't it? And we saw from the opening chapter of Revelation that it was an apocalyptic prophecy. And it says in the opening five verses, it lets us know that the message is communicated through symbolic language. Well, we're encountering that again here. Most likely, Satan is not a literal dragon, right? who can be bound with a physical chain or locked away in some kind of physical pit. But there is a spiritual message that's being communicated through symbolic language, right? He seizes the dragon at verse two, this ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan, four descriptives of Satan here, and he's bound for a thousand years. He throws him into this pit. He locks and seals it over him so that he could deceive the nations no more. What's really interesting here is chapter 12 said many of the same things. There are striking parallels between chapter 20 and chapter 12. Now, as a reminder here, we've been doing this for 22 weeks. We talked about the book of Revelation not being a chronological sequence of events that we can sit back and just kind of figure it out and come up with this nice, tidy time chart. I grew up kind of thinking that. I grew up in a school of thought, reading the book of Revelation, that it was this kind of sequential thing and that we could figure out how it all worked out. But here we are seeing some of the same themes and messages that we found in Revelation 12. And you can go back and and look at that, but we talked about the book of Revelation looking at particular events from different angles. Do you remember that? I talked about Hitchcock movies and how there would be one scene with a few actors and he would shoot it from up here and he would shoot it from down below and he would, and before you knew it, you had seen this one particular scene with the dialogue and the interaction from multiple perspectives. That's happening again here. Revelation 12 signals the end when God and Christ conquer the enemy, and it even announces in Revelation 12, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. So if you're looking at it chronologically, you would say, well, it's game over in chapter 12. It doesn't make any sense. So we are seeing over and over some of the same scenes that reiterate Jesus is Lord. He's conquered Satan through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but we're going to look at it from another vantage point. Make sense? And just knowing that alone, I don't know about you, but that helps me read the book of Revelation in a whole new light, right? It really does, and there's a word for it. 
I haven't used it, but I'm going to use it this morning, and it's called recapitulation. Let's say that together. Recapitulation, right? And really, that just means to recap, to retell. And so what we find, it's important as we read the book of Revelation, that you have oftentimes that different camera angle so that it's recapping the story and maybe shining new light on it. Think about this. You watch a sporting event, and they're able, through slow-mo and all of this, you can watch a particular play, and oftentimes it's when there's a question, you know, did his knee touch or did it not? And before it's over, you're like, oh my gosh, I never knew there were 20 cameras that could zoom in and look at this from different angles. The book of Revelation is doing something similar. And it's coming in and showing over and over again that Christ rules and reigns and that there's an already and not yet nature to it. Something is going on. I'm going to be a little bit personal. We're going to look at the different views in a moment here, but can I get personal with you? Is it not personal? I'll get a little more personal at other times, but I'm going through a paradigm shift. What does that mean? It means that my mind is shifting and changing even as we're in the study together and drawing from some really good, godly, scholars who've devoted their lives to studying and praying over the book of Revelation, I am shifting to see the book and this chapter in a different light. Something, some lights are coming on, and so I want to invite us as a church, if you like this kind of stuff, to revisit it with a fresh perspective. Um, we, I mentioned this before, Floyd and I have had some good conversation around this, but we have a, an excerpt from Wayne Grudem's book, systematic theology that we have online, which we're going to make a little easier to access, but we have some printed copies, and it lays out different views on the millennium and chapter 20 in a very helpful, clear way. So if you're interested in this, you want to geek out a little bit further on the book of Revelation, you can, you can see here. I want us to take a moment here before we look at some of the other main messages and themes, and I want us to look at what this thousand-year thing is about, the millennium, right? And that comes from a Latin word, millennia or millennium. So that's what the whole fuss is about in this chapter. And again, I'm going to circle back. I'm going to come back around so that we don't just get stuck. This passage is not primarily about the thousand years. It's about Jesus, who's ruling and reigning now, and his kingdom will be fully consummated. But let's just take a minute here and look at these views. The first one here, if you look up at the slide, is called White Snow. Can we get that one on amillennialism up there? Thank you for you guys. I, inter- I inundate them sometimes with slides, and so I appreciate their hard work and trying to keep up. But these are the three that we're going to look at quickly, and then we're going to end by looking at the great white throne judgment and the practical implications of that. But I do think it's important as your pastor that we, we know some of these things so that we're informed in the conversation. So even if you want to not look at this, um, look at it, and let's uh, walk through it together. So it's the, 
These are the three main views of the millennium. The first one is called a-millennial. Let's say that together, a-millennial. And this one needs to kind of be renamed, but the word a means there's no future millennium. It doesn't mean that there's no millennium, but it means it's not in the future, it's actually now. We'll learn more about that in a minute. The second one, if you look at the slide up here, is post-millennial. Let's say that together, post-millennial. And again, I don't mean for that to be uh, childish that we would say that, but for some of us, these are brand new terms and concepts, so let's learn together. Post-millennial means that Christ comes after the millennium. We'll look more at that, thus the word post. And then thirdly, pre-millennial. Christ comes pre or before the millennium. Let's look at the next slide here that spells it out a little more. Don't know if you can see that. All of this is taken from Grudem, Wayne Grudem's chapter that I already referenced. I brought my laser pointer here. And I'm going to point it right up there, okay? Boom, right there. So here's the key thing to realize in amillennialism is that we are actually in the millennium right now. The church age is where Christ is already ruling and reigning. Some of you are saying, well, it sure doesn't feel like it. <laughs> That's what I've always thought. As a premillennialist, I thought, man, it sure doesn't seem like Christ is ruling. But the amillennial view is looking at things in the spiritual realm, not as an earthly kingdom. So it's worth looking at and looking into. So the key thing is to realize here is that Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12, 29, Christ came and bound the strong man and toppled Satan's kingdom over. And so in a very real sense, his rule and reign has been initiated in the church age. Does that make sense? Again, boy, we could get in all the details looking at this, but I just want to introduce the general concepts. And then the key is to see here where the green light is, Christ will come at the end of the church age. And at that moment, it will all happen. The resurrection of the believers, the resurrection of unbelievers, the judgment seat, a new heaven, a new earth, and then we enter into the eternal state. Okay, let's move on quickly. Again, you can look at more detail in Grudem's chapter. The next one is post-millennialism. And we've already seen that post means after. So Christ comes after the millennium. Now, this one's interesting, and I'm just going to let you know, I don't find it compelling at all. Um, it is really kind of uh, the notion here. If you look, the church age is the millennium, but this argues that things are going wonderfully and that the church will increasingly Christianize culture and the nations and kind of enter into a golden era, a golden age of Christianity on the earth. What do you think about that, friends? Doesn't really sound, it was very popular in the pre-World War II era and then it all kind of came crashing down after World War II. They said this just kind of Christian utopian idea does not sound very convincing at all. So that's post-millennialism, and there's some overlap. I'm not going to go into it. Let's look at the third one here. How are we doing? A little bit of classroom in church. Is that okay? Is that all right? If you said no, it's too bad. We're already in it. 
The third one's premillennialism, and there's a classic historic expression of this, and look at all the detail on this. There's so much to look at, but this is basically, there's a church age, we're living in it now. Christ will return. He will establish his kingdom. He'll rapture the church. He'll establish his kingdom. Then there'll be a thousand year millennium. Then there'll be resurrection. Folks will stand before the judgment seat and then there'll be the eternal state. If you're interested in this, you can go back and and look more. Here's the last one here. And this is the one I've had some discussion with. Another expression here. I've had some discussion with folks around our church because this was popularized through the Tim LaHaye book series, Left Behind. Some of you may have read it. And I'm just going to say, as a pastor and a friend, the theology in that's problematic. It's a good read, and it gets the, the overall story right that the church will suffer at different times and that Christ will come back and that the Lord will do mighty things in Israel. But the overall dispensational theology that comes through that is problematic. Uh, What does dispensational mean? It means that God works in seven dispensations or eras, and he works with the church and Israel in different ways. Here's the crux here. This view of the millennium argues that we live in the church age, and that Christ will actually see where the light is here, Christ will come back secretly and rapture the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. He'll take the church to heaven. A great tribulation, that's what the T symbolizes here, will occur for seven years on the earth. At the end of that seven-year period, Christ will return publicly with the saints, Revelation 19, He'll establish an earthly kingdom called the millennium. At the end of that, there will be resurrection, judgment, and the eternal state. So some of you are thinking, well, that is a lot of information. You can go back and look at it. I just want us to be able to to discuss it and think about it. And I'm not going to tell you what view I'm kind of leaning toward these days, but I am studying it afresh. And I've said this. I will make one statement, okay? that ties into this, this notion, this idea that Jesus is going to rapture the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, before things get bad and take Christians out of difficult times, in my opinion, is misleading. And it's a rather new or novel teaching an idea that was taught in the United Kingdom uh, within the last couple hundred years. And I find when you study it, the pre-tribulational rapture theory uh, is not biblical. So some of you, I'm willing to have constructive conversation and dialogue around it. Everyone's entitled to have whatever view there is. But when I read the New Testament, Yes, there is a rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 teaches that. But when is it? I think it's at the end of difficult time and that Christ comes, Revelation 19, and receives his church and then establishes his kingdom. Now, some of you want to argue and debate, and I totally understand. We should have respectful, humble conversation around this, right? 
And that's what we do at our Lord's. We have a variety of views and opinions, and we have our noses in the Bible. And we look at this, and we search it out, and we say, God, make us teachable. Let us learn from one another, because in the end, you're coming. And you will have your way on the earth, and you will have your church, your beloved bride, with you, and you will consummate your kingdom. And whatever of those three views you hold, you should agree with that. Amen? Christ will come. And yes, there is a rapture. But when I read the New Testament, I think that it says, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. We follow a Christ. We follow a leader who was a martyr. And he told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be raised again. And so I think that when you read the New Testament in particular, it is, there's a message there that the people of God follow Christ. We also take up our cross. He gives us the grace and power to endure all things. And just like the early church, just like Paul and the disciples, he enables us to go through anything because of his goodness, his glory, his power. Amen? <laughs> Two of you, amen. Now, we've seen that the whole book of Revelation, 20 chapters so far, it is a message for a suffering church. And we don't know historically all that was going on. We do know that the Roman Empire did not like Christians. And so the book of Revelation, the Lord gave it to John to share with the churches to say, prepare to follow Christ no matter what. Don't worship the emperor don't put your confidence in the state. Worship Jesus. He is Lord, and he will bring you through, and one day he will crown you with his crown, and you will be with him forever and ever. Amen? So I've opened up multiple cans of worms, I know, through that. And what I want us to do here in our remaining time is I want us to hear a few of the other little messages that come out of the remaining parts of the text, and then we're going to end with the great white throne judgment. So we've seen, I spent a little more time in one through three, Revelation 20, one through three, and now four through six. We're not really gonna drill into this, but I want you to hear the message of verses four through six, and that is the faithful will be resurrected and reign with Christ. Do you believe that? The faithful, the saints of God will be resurrected and they will reign with Christ. That's the whole point. Do we know exactly when and how and who and the sequence of those things? I would suggest it's not totally clear, but the message is the faithful will be resurrected and reign with Christ. Wallace and I were discussing this on our trip. We don't talk about this enough that presently, what does Ephesians 2 say about believers in Christ? Where are you seated? Where am I seated? Where are all living believers seated with Christ? Where is it? In heavenly places. So in some real and spiritual way that blows our minds, we are currently already seated with Christ Jesus, who is Lord, and sharing in his rule and reign right now. And we don't, was that Addie? 
Yes, Addie lives that, right? So we are ruling and reigning with Christ. And we'll see that this is really important when uh, we look at the life and ministry of Jesus because we just don't ponder that enough. Some of you are wondering, why would I call out Addie? Because this is a personal place. And so I want to know people by name, and I I just love to, to do that. A third thing here, verses 7 through 10. Satan, listen to the message that comes through verses 7 through 10. Satan will be allowed for a limited time to deceive the nations and war against the saints. But ultimately, he will be punished forever in the lake of fire with the Antichrist and false prophet. And we already saw that in chapter 12, and we saw it in chapter 19, but it's being recapped, recapitulated, restated again here. And then lastly, verses 11 through 15, this is the message that comes through the text. Listen to this, and this is where we're going to end. Verses 11 through 15 say this. Again, the when and the how and all of that is for the Lord to give us wisdom and insight on. Every human being will stand before the throne of God to give account for the life they lived. Every human being will stand before the throne of God to give account for the life they lived. Those not recorded in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire, as will death and all the effects of sin. This is one of the more sobering places in the entire book of Revelation. And we have seen over and over again that human history is moving toward that moment when every human being, and that's what it talks about when the sea gives up its dead, it's basically saying, even if you died in a shipwreck and you're buried at the bottom of the sea, you will be resurrected and you will give account to God for the life you lived. Death and Hades, the place of the dead, will give up their dead and every human being will stand before God. Now, as Christians, that is actually good news because we on that day will appear before the judgment seat of God clothed in Christ wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus justified by his blood sanctified by his spirit and the father will say well done that is powerful and that is beautiful and that is amazing and If you're not a part of that, get in on it through faith in Christ. At the same time, Paul teaches numerous places, book of Corinthians, multiple multiple places, 2 Corinthians 5, others, that even Christians will give account to God for our deeds in the body. Now, it's not a matter of salvation or judgment, but it's a matter of stewardship. Friends, this is super tough to talk about. The Apostle Paul opens up personally and says, I know that I will stand before God and give account for my life and the stewardship, the things that God has given me. Have I been faithful? Have I served? Have I loved? And he turns to the church and says, so it will be with you. 
It's not a matter of eternal salvation. It's a matter of rewards. Not a very popular message. Boy, we're stacking those up, aren't we? Stacking up the messages, but it is the word of God. And Wallace and I were talking about how sobering that is. Is that sobering to you? It certainly is sobering to me. It's not chilling. It doesn't fill me with fear. It doesn't frighten me. It sobers me and quickens me and says, okay, what am I doing with what God has given me? And I need grace and mercy just like you do. Lord, would you help me wake up and be responsible and live the life that you've given to me to the best of my abilities, form Christ in me, your fruit. Let me love as he did, but man, that's a lifelong project. So do we hear at the core of this that's good news? It's good news, right? If you've put your faith in Jesus and you belong to him. Friends, I shared this a while ago. I'm gonna end with a couple of little stories here, then we'll wrap up. I was 19 years old. It was May 13th. And I had just come back from my freshman year at TCU. And I had an encounter with God. And my family was there and a friend of ours, Kay Zahasky, and I've shared a little bit about that encounter. I tend to not share about it that much because it makes me susceptible to misunderstanding and different things. But I'm gonna share a little bit today. In that encounter, I, the Lord, took me to a place and I saw into the throne room of God. And I shook for an hour and my parents were wondering what is happening here. We were good evangelicals and what is going on here. And for an hour I had visions and I encountered the overwhelming majesty and holiness of God at age 19. Uh, one gentleman calls it mysterium tremendum, a word that means great and profound mystery and being overwhelmed by God's holy presence. And at 19, I experienced that for an hour. And there were a series of visions and things that, that happened, and I narrated all of it to my parents. And it was a life-changing moment. And when I, after this hour-long encounter with God, the Lord told me, your life is no longer yours because of that. And I've never forgotten it, obviously. Have I strayed away? Have I battled sin? Have I struggled? You bet. That's part of being a sinner and a saint. But I knew in 1989 that I needed to remember that moment well because I was gonna come there again. And you will too. Everybody in this room, everybody listening online, all five people. Your life is on a trajectory, a course to the throne room of God to the enthroned God of the universe. And you will stand before him. And this passage is calling the church to meditate on that. 
and to ponder it. That the holy, awesome, majestic, glorious, all-powerful, omniscient creator of the universe will look into your heart. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been a good steward and by his grace and his love and his affection you've lived for him, then it will be a beautiful, glorious moment. And if not, it will be the most horrific, terrible moment of your existence. And this text says, get right with God and live your life in light of the fact that you are moving closer and closer each day toward meeting your maker. And I don't know if there's anything more sobering in the whole text of the Bible. And he is filled with love and compassion and affection. Floyd, if you got something to say, you can say it in just a minute, okay? All right. Um, I wanted to share another thing, another thing that's beautiful. And this is a, a gentleman. Actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just end, end with that. Just listening to what the Lord might want to do. Why don't we just close our eyes for a moment here? And, and Lord, we, we do. We, we hear your word. And we open our hearts and our minds to it. All of it, including this. And we say, Lord, would you help us recognize that we are on course to stand before you one day and friends I want you to hear it is a throne of grace Hebrews 4 15 and 16 says that if you are a Christian a follower of Jesus a child of God who's been brought into his family you will stand before the throne one day and Hebrews 4 says it is a throne of grace that you can approach boldly with confidence in your heart because you're clothed in Christ and because the Father has set his love on you. But even in that, this is a sobering reality, church. So Father, I ask you to help us even now in this moment to search our hearts and to help us live life in view of eternity and to be prepared by your grace and your love and affection to give account for our lives one day. Lord, we rely on your mercy, your help for this. Amen. So friends, if you are uh, wondering, am I in relationship with Jesus? Am I in the Father's family? This is a great moment right here to call out to him simply. Say, I, I love you. I believe that Christ died, that he rose again, and I want him to be Lord of my life. It's as simple as that. And then give yourself to him and to his people 